My name is Reuven Prager. I'm originally from Miami Beach, Florida. That's why I can speak English. I've been living in Israel for the last 38 years, and for the last 32 years of that, I've been serving as a Levite on duty, researching and restoring ancient Israelite customs in preparation for rebuilding the Holy Temple. Let me define that. When I say that I serve as a Levite on duty, my father was a Levite, my father's father was a Levite, my father's 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 father was a Levite, all the way back to biblical levy. You remember that when the Israelites entered the land of Israel, the land was apportioned amongst 11 of the 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi, we didn't receive a portion of the land, we received a duty. Our duty was to provide the physical vessels necessary for the spiritual well-being of the people. When it came time to construct the tabernacle, it was the Levites who constructed it. During our 40 years of wandering in the desert, when it came time to move our encampment, it was the Levites who would disassemble the tabernacle, the Levites who would carry it, and the Levites who would reassemble it when we got to our new campsite. When we entered the Holy Land and we built the Holy Temple, if a Kohen, a priest, needed a vessel, it was the Levite who provided it, and if the vessel didn't exist, it was the Levite who created it. We were the doctors, we were the teachers, we were the singers, we were the one tribe that was set aside to minister to the spiritual needs of the people. And in lieu of our service, we were granted the tithe. That 10% that we were commanded to give to the Levites was to free us from worldly pursuit so we'd be available to minister to the spiritual needs of the people. A Levite is in training from age 20 to 25, and from age 25 and on, you're on duty. When I moved from Miami Beach to Jerusalem, it was like switching planets. It's a different world over there. And I had to decide, like, what am I going to do with my life's work? And the more that I learned, and the more that I learned specifically about the Levites, I came to realize that this was still a valid job offer. Nobody had ever canceled it. So I chose to serve in my God-given career as a Levite on duty. When I say that I research and restore ancient Israelite customs in preparation for rebuilding the temple, that also needs defining. Whatever we're familiar with is contemporary Jewish custom, normative Judaism, the way that Jews do things today, almost nothing that we do today in contemporary Judaism do we do the way that our ancestors did it. Let me give you an analogy that will help you understand the nature of my work. Let's say we have a couple that, God forbid, the husband is in a terrible accident. They put him in a full-body cast, covers 93% of his body, just his foot is left outside of the cast. And the doctors come and tell this couple that this poor guy is going to be like that for two whole years. So during those two years, his wife learns to care for him and love him through his foot. At the end of the two years, the doctors come and they remove the cast, and she continues only paying attention to his foot, ignoring the rest of him. In a sense, that's Judaism today, in case you're wondering where I was going with that. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, when the Holy Temple was destroyed and we were exiled from our land, we lost the ability to fulfill 93% of our religious customs. The 7% of the commandments that we could pack in a suitcase and take with us in our wanderings in exile, that became the focal point for normative Judaism for the next 2,000 years, basically keeping the Sabbath and its related laws. The laws of kashrut, how to eat clean, honoring your parents, but the other 93% of customs that we could no longer perform for real because the temple had been destroyed and we were exiled from our land, those customs were reinstituted in the first century into a series of what we call in Hebrew, zechers, remembrances, so that as we went out into exile, we'd be able to remember what our ancient customs were so that when the generation arose that merited to return to the land of Israel, we'd remember how to restore our ancient customs. Let me give you a practical for example. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 to 41, 
God commands Moses to bid the children of Israel to put fringes on the corners of our garments throughout our generations. You guys all familiar with the talit, with the prayer shawl? For the last 2,000 years, the way that we fulfill the commandment of fringes has been by wrapping ourselves in a prayer shawl during the time of prayer. And those of us who wore our fringes during the course of the day would wear them attached to a fork a little four-cornered undergarment known in Hebrew as the talit katan. Everybody say katan. Katan in Hebrew means small. It's a little four-cornered garment. It's got holes in the corners. We would attach the fringes to, and we would wear these hidden underneath our Gentile apparel. But our ancestors did not fulfill the commandment of fringes on an undergarment or in an artificial prayer shawl. This garment here, this is actually what a talit was before it became a prayer shawl. You, you guys will be familiar with this as the seamless garment, woven from the top throughout. Now you'll notice that there are two garments here, this white silky undergarment. In Hebrew it's called a chaluk. In Arabic it's called a jalabiya or galabiya. And this was biblical underwear for the Middle East. Every man in the Middle East wore one of these long bell-dressed type of outfits. In fact, if you go to a traditional Muslim country t t today, like Jordan or, or Egypt, the guys are still boogieing around in these long bell-dressed type of outfits. An Israelite would distinguish ourselves by the talit that we wore over our chaluk. And this was the way that we fulfilled the commandment from the time that we received the commandment up until the Hadrianic decree of the year 135 that forbade us under penalty of death from fulfilling the commandment. In the year 135, after Hadrian's decree, this garment became a zecher, it became a remembrance. It became a, became a little four-cornered garment that we would attach the fringes to and wear them hidden underneath our Gentile apparel so that we could remember the commandment of fringes but without getting killed for doing so. But because it says in the book of Numbers, you shall put fringes on the corners of your garments throughout your generations, and it's stretching the imagination to consider this a garment. A garment is something you put on and go out in public and consider yourself dressed either for modesty's sake or as protection from the environment. So at the time that we, d we adopted the Talit Katan, we developed what became known as the Talit Gadol. Everybody say Gadol. Gadol in Hebrew means large, so that when we would meet secretly for a prayer service behind a locked door in the morning, we could wrap ourselves in a piece of cloth big enough to be considered a garment. And then at the end of the prayer service, we would take our Talit, and we would fold it up and put it in a bag and carry it out under our arms and continue to wear the talit katan hidden underneath our Gentile apparel for the remainder of the day. But before there was an undergarment, before there was an artificial prayer shawl, this is actually what a talit was. So when I say that I research and restore ancient Israelite customs, I take the contemporary custom of exile, the way that we've been doing it for the last 2,000 years, research it, restore it, put it back out on the streets of Jerusalem, and today there's no more Titus or Vespasian or Hadrian over us telling us, no, you can't fulfill the commandment. We're back in the land, we're free people upright in our land, and yet so many of us are just only paying attention to the foot. So that's a really long introduction, but that gives you an idea of the nature of my work when I say I research and restore ancient Israelite customs. Now, you know that living in Israel, you're in the army. Now, right, you live in Israel, you're in the army. So, oh, let me predate that. Okay, let me backtrack a moment. 32 years ago, I established a workshop in Jerusalem called Begid Ivri. Everybody say Begid. Begid, B-E-G-E-D, or, or Bet Gimel Dalit in Hebrew. Begid in Hebrew means garment, and Ivri, Ivri. 
Ivri means Hebrew or Israelite. So Beged Ivri means Hebrew garments or Israelite garments, biblical garments. For the last 32 years, my workshop in Jerusalem, which is basically me sitting behind an old Singer sewing machine, has been producing a beautiful line of biblical garments for the modern Israelite so that those of us who have returned to the land, we can begin to dress and look like we live there. The black hats and the black coats that are associated with orthodoxy, that's cute and it's nostalgic, but our ancestors did not fulfill the commandment of fringes on a rag hidden underneath Gentile apparel. Um, now, living in Israel, you're in the army now, right? So I got inducted into the army, and I went to the induction center. They gave me my uniforms, and they expected me to fulfill the commandment of fringes on one of these little dinky things hidden underneath my army uniforms, right? And I'm Mr. Biblical Garments. So what did I do? I took my army uniforms home, and I redesigned them all into four-cornered garments. I sewed them closed in the front. I opened them up on the sides. I got a religious ruling that zippers are considered open even in the closed position. Um, I got khaki-colored zippers so there wouldn't be a problem with camouflage. And I redesigned all my army uniforms into four-cornered garments and tight tzitzit, Tied fringes on the corners of my, garment, uh, my army uniforms. Showed up at the base. What did they do? They tried me for destroying army property. And at my trial, I said, destroyed it. I sanctified it. I make a bracha. I make a blessing on my uniform when I get dressed in the morning. They didn't think it was so funny. In fact, they threw me out of the army. They figured, this guy's nuts. Get rid of him quick before he infects anybody. Now, <laughs> I'd already been trained for my, 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 my job in the army. So I was home for 11 days. They called me up. And they asked me if I wouldn't mind please coming back and finishing my army service, which I did with my tzitzit attached to the corners of my army uniforms. I actually made sergeant. <laughs> sergeant Rue. Right? So tzitzit for all occasions. Although I never did do a day of reserve duty for some reason. I don't know. They never called. <laughs> all right. Now, you'll notice that the garment... Uh, oh, for the most part in Israel today, um, the, the guys wear pants wearing public, were wearing slacks, like, oh, you guys are wearing pants? Some people are going back to the haluk, but that's really few and far between, and most of them are real nutcases. For the, for the, most, for the most part, the guys in Israel wear pants wearing public. So I made a modern adaptation of the biblical talit. I call it a tunic. It's the garment that I'm wearing. It's open up the majority of the way on the sides. That's why it comes with a sash, so I'm not flapping in the wind. And I make a beautiful line of tunics for all occasions. I have super lightweight cottons for the hot, hot Texas summer days. I have heavy cottons for when it gets chilly here. I have a beautiful line of Damascus silks for Sabbaths and, and feasts and, and, and weddings, or if you just have good taste. Beautiful line of tunics for all occasions. Now, you'll notice that the garment that I'm wearing and all the garments that I offer include the required biblical blue fringe. Any Hebrew speakers here, Hebrew class graduates, anybody? All right, here's another word for you. Everybody say, kachol. Kachol, and the ch comes from the top of the back of your mouth. You have to spit it out. Kachol. Kachol, with a, uh, an L at the end, kachol, in Hebrew means blue. Powder blue, royal blue, navy blue, cobalt blue, any shade of blue from any dye source. But concerning this commandment, let me give you the verse because in case you're not familiar with it. Book of Numbers, chapter 15, Verses 37 to 41 says, God commands Moses to bid the children of Israel to put fringes on the corners of our garments throughout our generations and to put a twist of tchelet, a particular blue dye, on the fringes of the corners of our garments. The Torah doesn't use the word kachol, it uses the word tchelet, a specific dye. The same way if I were to say crimson or Bordeaux, that could be any shade of from any dye source. But if I say cochinelle, you know that we're talking about a specific dye that's produced from a specific insect that produces a specific color. 
So likewise, the Torah, the Bible, was being specific in requiring a petil tchelet, a twist of a particular blue dye. Now, when the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, they didn't just want to beat us on the spot, they wanted to make sure that we didn't come back and reestablish ourselves in the land. How did they accomplish that? As they took us out into exile, they separated between generations. Keep in mind that up until the destruction of the Second Temple, our traditions were strictly an oral tradition. We passed our traditions down from father to son, from mother to daughter, from generation to generation. The Mishnah had not been written yet, and the Talmud hadn't even been conceived of. We passed our traditions down orally from generation to generation. The Romans, in taking us out into exile, separated between generations so that we couldn't pass our traditions down to the younger generation so that, that younger generation would not maintain a longing to come back and reestablish themselves in the land. Because when you remove a people from their traditions, they lose their indigenous connection with their land. And we lost many of our traditions in the first century, one of which was, what was the dye source for the required biblical blue fringe? Now, our sages told us that the trellet, the required biblical blue, came from a marine source, as opposed to the plant world, that they referred to as the chilazon. The question for the last 2,000 years has been, what was the chilazon? They didn't give us a Latin name to identify it by, but they gave us 11 different characteristics, describing its body shape, its movement, its environment. And based on those 11 characteristics, in 1887, one of the great sages of Europe, Rabbi Gershon Henech Leiner from the city of Radzin, left his village, went down to the Mediterranean, and spent two years researching everything that lives along the Mediterranean coastline until he came to the conclusion that he had positively re-identified the chilazon as a species of squid, Latin name sepia officinalis. You all know what a squid is? Like a little octopus, it's got eight tentacles, which sort of correspond to the eight fringes of the of the tzitzit. Now, sepia officinalis, it has two blood sacs. One is its lifeblood, one is a black blood that it uses as a camouflage. When it's being chased in the water, it spritzes this ink into the water, which creates a cloud that allows it to escape from its predator. Which, by the way, is the function of trelit for mankind, because it says, you shall see it and remember. It's like if I decided after flying all the way from Israel to Miami and driving all the way from Miami to here on Super Bowl Sunday, instead of coming here today and sharing words of Torah with you, I'd go in, I'd go find a local pub and go do something dumb, get drunk, and as I'm running to do something stupid, my fringes get caught in the car door, or they get caught in the bumper between cars as I'm running to do something dumb. And as I reach down to extract them, I see the blue. And they ask in the Talmud, what color is trelid, what color is blue? They answer, well, it resembles the sky. They go, yeah, but what color is that? They say, well, it resembles the sea. They go, yeah, but what color is that? They say, well, it resembles the sapphire. And they ask one last time, yeah, but what color is that? They answer, it resembles the kiseh kavod, the holy throne of glory that God sits upon, is made of trelid, is made of this blue. So as I'm running to do something dumb and my tzitzit get caught and I reach down to extract them and I see the trelid and I make the association, God's throne, God's presence in my life, my commitment to live by his commandments, it creates a cloud that allows me to escape blowing it spiritually. So the same way that the ink saves the physical life of the squid from its predator, Trelit saves the spiritual life of mankind, as it says, Urita moto, you shall see it and remember, and not run after your eyes and after your heart, which can lead you astray. 
Since 1887, the Radziner Hasidim, the followers of Rabbi Gershon Hanachleiner, have continued to produce the required biblical blue fringe, and if you already have a prayer shawl or a garment and you only have the white fringes on it, you can now acquire a set of these. You'll notice on the back of the packaging it says free tying instructions at begadivri.com. We have the best guides available anywhere in the world for free, uh, nine-page fully illustrated guides so that you can successfully retie your garment, including the required biblical blue fringe. Now, to be fair, in the last century, there were two other opinions of what the chilazon was, and I just need to make a footnote, because I'm an Alvin, which is a hop, skip, skip and jump from, from Galveston. There's a National Celephopod Research Institute in Galveston, and they specialize in studying sepia officinalis, the dye source for the required biblical blue fringe. And my friends took me down there a couple of years ago, and they have these breeding tanks, right? And they have these squids, they're like this big, right? And you look over the, over the edge of the tank, and they all spritz the ink up at you. They're this big, like you can't even see them. And you just anyway, it was just a footnote. <laughs> <clears throat> now, there were two other opinions of what the Chilazon was in the last century. Rabbi Herzog, who was the first chief rabbi of Israel, when he was a young man in England, he wrote his doctoral thesis on the dye source for the required biblical blue fringe, and he came to the conclusion that this snail, the Jantina Jantina, that this was the Chilazon that the ancients had spoken about. He never succeeded in extracting a dye from it, and truth be told, it's not a shell that's ever been used by any culture for dyeing. It does emit a secretion, but it won't take to fiber. And he recanted his opinion in favor of Radzin prior to his passing away. I'm going to pass this around. When you receive it, please receive it open-handed, because the shell doesn't weigh two grams, and it'll, it'll crush in your hand. Jantina Jantina. Very interesting snail. It builds itself a raft of bubbles, and it spends its entire lifetime bobbing up and down on the surface of the ocean. And every so often, thousands of them will come together, hook up their rafts, make like a flotilla, which is now a bad word in Israel. And you guys aren't up on Israeli... That joke is less and less laughs every, every time, so I guess I can let that go. There's a... <laughs> no, the flotilla incident was already, what, four years ago, five years ago, people forget, you know? There's a third group in Israel that for the last 27 years has been producing a blue dye from this snail called the Trunculus murex. Trunculus murex. I'm going to speak more about this in just a moment. Throughout the Torah, throughout the Bible, there are three colors that seem to have a spiritual significance. The first of which that we spoke about at length was the trelet that was required for everybody's fringes. There was a second color called argaman. Argaman is biblical purple. Corresponds to what we know as Tyrian purple or Phoenician purple or royal purple. And, the, and biblical purple, argamon, came from the second snail coming around, the trunculus murex. There's a third color called tolat shani. And tolat shani was a crimson that was produced from the back of insects that live in the bark of oak trees in the Galil, in the Galilee, in northern Israel. And what they would do is they would take these insect backs, dry them out, crush them up, make a dye batch. They would take the wool and prepare it with what's called a mordant, which is a substance that opens the cellular structure of the wool to allow it to accept the dye. And this is raw wool dyed with tolat shani, biblical crimson. These three colors, blue, purple, and crimson, were used initially for the drapings of the tabernacle. They were used in the priestly garments. Now, this is not a priestly garment. It's a lay Israelite talit that any of us could wear, but it is woven in the priestly colors of blue, purple, and crimson. And of course, when we entered the, the Holy Land and we built the Holy Temple, 
there were two chambers to the temple. You had the outer chamber called the Holies, and the inner chamber called the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a double curtain known as the Parochet, also woven out of these three colors, blue, purple, and crimson. One last word about ancient dye stuffs. In the Talmud, they teach that in the latter Second Temple period, there were some folks who weren't so honest, they weren't so scrupulous. And they figured, you know, the trellet, it's so much more expensive to produce than any other dye, maybe they can make a phony trellet, they can make a knockoff, make a quick buck, a quick shekel, right? And in the Talmud, they call a phony trellet, they call it klailan. Klailan was wool dyed with indigo from a plant source, as opposed to the trellet, which came from the marine source. It was much less expensive to produce, and it was indistinguishable to the eye. There was a test you could submit your tzitzit to to determine whether or not you had the real McCoy. From that teaching, we learned that whenever you acquire trellet, you get it from a God-fearing source, someone who's considered knowledgeable in trellet. What I'm going to pass around right now, this is genuine counterfeit trellet. Any questions about anything I've covered so far? Biblical garments, the commandment of fringes, or biblical colors? What was the year that they started the prayer song? 136. 135, 136. Hadrian's decree, if you remember, the Bar Kokhba revolt went from 132 to 135, and we lost it in 135, and that's when Hadrian decreed against Tzitzit. He tried to wipe out Judaism altogether. And so after, after that, in the year 135 to the year 136, is when we began with the undergarment and the artificial prayer shawl. It's been a long time. A long time. Any of you ladies have a question about fulfilling the commandment to fringes? Thank you for asking. <laughs> I have to bring you with me on my tour. Um, the question is, can women fulfill the commandment of, of tzitzit? Jewish law is very clear on the subject. Men are obligated and women are permitted. And anybody who teaches, can I teach that here? Anybody who teaches, <laughs> it's your house. I gotta, <laughs> no, there's some places, I speak in some funky places, you know, and you'd be surprised how orthodox they get, you know, right? Um, Jewish law is very clear on the subject. Men are obligated, women are permitted. Anybody who teaches anything beyond that is just expressing chauvinism. If you went to any Orthodox rabbi and said, me as a woman, can I fulfill the commandment of fringes? He'd make like a prune face, you know, and he'd say, well, that's sort of a man's custom. But if you were to remind him that Michal, King Saul's daughter, who married King David, she wore fringes. Bruria wore, wore tzitzit. The commentators Rashi and Rambam, Maimonides, their wives and daughters wore tzitzit. They wore fringes. So if he went back to this rabbi and said, yeah, but what about Michal and what about Bruria? What about the wives and daughters of Rashi and Rambam? He'd say, well, those were exceptional women. I think we realize today that all of you women are exceptional women. <laughs> And you, you have us well-trained to boot, right? <laughs> so bottom line is men are obligated, women are permitted. If you are going to fulfill the commandment as a woman, you do need to do it differently than the men in your community. If the men traditionally have a wool talit with black stripes, go for white stripes, something more feminine. I have a beautiful line of hand-painted silk taluses, especially for ladies. I make a chiffon talus a guy wouldn't be caught dead in. <laughs> right? It's angelic on a woman. So you're not obligated, you're permitted, but because tzitzit have to be attached to the corners of a garment, men and women can't wear the same garment, so it has, you have to do it differently, you know, more femininely, differently than the guys do. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for asking. Yes? Well, this, yeah, this would be a traditional men's biblical talit. I've made a version of this for ladies that's more feminine. A, a, a more feminine material or with an embroidery pattern on it or something like that. I have a, an album here that has a lot of the different outfits that I made. If you're interested, I'd, I'd be happy to make you custom make you something. Any other questions about anything I've covered so far? 
The second project that we took from thought to physical reality was to restore our ancient marriage customs. You all familiar with Jewish weddings? We get married, we stand under a chuppah. So let me show you how we really do it. On the day of our weddings, we crown our brides with a Jerusalem of gold bridal crown. It was a crown of pure gold depicting the walls of Jerusalem. And once again, this is what our brides look like crowned with the Jerusalem of gold bridal crown. It was known as the Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. And every bride in Israel would be crowned on her wedding day with a Jerusalem of gold bridal crown. And you ladies did not walk to your wedding, but rather you were carried like a queen on a royal wedding litter known as the Aperion. A-P-E-R-I-O-N. Biblical source is the book Song of Songs. You might know it's the Song of Solomon. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where it describes the wedding litter made for King Solomon's wedding. Now, I don't know if King Solomon made a thousand of these or used the same one a thousand times. A little biblical humor there. But every, every bride in Israel... I don't think another woman would want to be Every bride in Israel was carried to a wedding on an apirion, and you were carried not to the chuppah, but rather to the chuppat chatanim. For the last 2,000 years, our chuppah, our wedding canopy, was a flat cloth. Very often we used a talus, we used a prayer shawl. It wasn't a talus, it was a kippah, it was a dome, made of pure crimson silk with fine beaten gold work. But look carefully at this photo and you'll see it better when it comes around. You'll notice that at this wedding, the couple got to the wedding hall, they took one look at our chuppah, and they said to themselves, haven't seen a chuppah look like that for 2,000 years, we better hedge our bets. So they strung up a talit, they strung up a chuppah of exile underneath the canopy of redemption, which shows you the difficulty in the nature of our work. First, you have to research this stuff out, then you have to restore it, then you have to go convince everybody that what you've restored is real. Because, you know, tradition, tradition. We got so used to the flat, you know, talit form of chuppah that we lost sight that that was instituted as a remembrance to remind us what a chuppah really was. Now, when I was bringing this project from thought to physical reality, I knew I needed a team of carriers. You see these guys in the blue and gold? These are Jerusalem's royal litter bearers. I put an ad in the Jerusalem Post that ran for six weeks, seeking ten good men. You had to be six foot to six foot five, bearded, permanently living in the land of Israel. You had to be the magus, the heavy machine gunner in the infantry units, the guys that carry the Belgian mag, 50 caliber Rambo. I needed big, strong guys. You had to have a strong sense of theatrics and be looking for an extra income. Forty-four men replied to the ad. The youngest was 18 years old. The oldest was 73 years old. Uh, he was tall enough. He was cute, but he was scrawny. I needed bulk. I needed big, strong guys. I chose 10 guys out of the 44, put them through two weeks of basic training on the roof of my building with me as the bride until they learned how to pick it up together, turn left together, turn right together. You don't want to dump the bride, you know? These guys are really hot. Jerusalem's royal litter bearers. For those of you who are already married, so you shouldn't feel left out, if you have a significant anniversary coming up, your 10th, 15th, 20th, 25th, 30th, 40th, 50th, you still love her, bring your bride to Jerusalem. That's just to see who's still listening. <laughs> bring your bride to Jerusalem. We will crown her with the Jerusalem of gold bridal crown, carry her through the streets of Jerusalem on a royal wedding litter to the accompaniment of shofar blowers and harpists, and we'll recreate a biblical wedding for your anniversary celebration. Any questions about anything that I've covered so far? <laughs> we, char we charge $1,500 for a wedding, which is not a lot. Um, 
in Israel, this project is registered as a nonprofit organization, and we've never turned anybody down for lack of funds. You know how sometimes you have a wedding where the parents of the bride don't like the groom and they ain't coming to the wedding? You know, we had a couple brought to our attention that both sets of folks ain't coming to the wedding. I mean, never. These guys didn't have a shekel between the two of them. I called all the guys. Of course, they volunteered their time. We volunteered their equipment. They, they actually got married in B'nai Brak on the other side of the country, so we had to schlep this stuff from Jerusalem to B'nai Brak. The wedding hall was the roof of a three-story building, so we had to get all this stuff up to the roof, right? But it's a wedding 14 years ago. They're still talking about it. It was the most joyous wedding you've ever been to, and they didn't pay a shekel. They didn't have a shekel. Um, for the locals, if they can cover, like most of the $1,500 goes to actual outlays. You know, I got eight salaries and a, and a bus and a truck, and, you know, it costs. Um, uh, of course, anybody coming from abroad, it's another plane ticket. It's not that big of a deal. But in Israel, we've never, we've never turned anybody down for, for lack of funds. Yes? Yeah. Yes. No, we provide we provide the Jerusalem of Gold bridal crown, the Apirion, the wedding litter, the the chupa, uh, seven of Jerusalem's royal litter bearers, including two shofar blowers and a harpist that come in in you know in drag. <laughs> they come in 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 beggedy bree drag. You know. Any other questions? Well, we can only do one a day. I mean, it's like you know because you know. <laughs> and we've been doing it since, since uh, 1992. So this, this is uh, 23, 23rd year of biblical weddings. All right. In the Holy Temple, there were two altars. There was an outer sacrificial altar and there was an inner altar called the Golden Altar or the Incense Altar. And it was rather small. It measured a cubit by a cubit by two cubits high. A cubit is about 50 centimeters which doesn't mean anything here either, about yay big by yay big by yay big high, it was made of a solid piece of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And every day, twice a day, a priest would go out to the outer sacrificial altar with a pure silver fire pan, a silver shovel, and he would take a shovel full of burning coals, bring them into the temple, transfer them into a gold fire pan that would then be placed on top of the golden incense altar. A third priest would come in carrying a two-handled vessel known as the bezich, this is a vessel made out of solid gold, restored by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem in 1992. And the priest would come in carrying this two-handled vessel. A fourth priest would come and open it up, take a handful of a powder mix that was a compound of 11 different spices. No KFC jokes, please. 11 herbs and spices. Ooh, okay. He would, <laughs> he would take that handful of powder mix, drop it onto the burning coals, and a pillar of smoke would go straight up and out through the inverted windows of the temple. You know, we build a building, we put in windows to let the light and the heat in. The temple windows were designed just the opposite. They were designed to let the light and the heat and the energy out. And they teach that at the moment that the priests would drop the incense powder on the burning coals and that pillar of smoke would go straight up and out through the inverted windows of the temple that the goats in Jericho would sneeze. You're not all laughing. How many have been to Israel? That's it. Next time I come through, I want to see every hand up. You've got to put your feet where your faith is. People come visit us over there. Jericho is about 45 miles away from Jerusalem in the lowest point on earth, down by the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's up on a mountaintop. They teach that women as far away as Jericho did not wear perfume because the smell of the incense emanating outwards from Jerusalem was so strong in the air, you wouldn't have smelled perfume on your skin as far away as Jericho. I'm going to share with you now the 11 original ingredients that were compounded into that incense mix that was burnt twice daily in the temple. When it comes around, just take the stopper out. Mm, take a whiff, pass it on. The first one coming around is called Shemin Tsori. 
In English, it's known as balsam. That's the most celebrated of all biblical spices. There are more, more stories about that than any other spice in the Torah. The next one coming around in Hebrew is called ketzia. In English, cassia. This is going to remind you of red hots. Remember red hots when we were kids? Take a mouthful, burn your face off red hots. So I used to think that red hots are made out of cinnamon. They're not. They're actually made out of cassia. It's a much stronger species of cinnamon, and it's the first of three different forms of cinnamon incorporated into the incense. Next is followed by levona, or frankincense, which is very often mentioned together with? All right, I'll ask that question, get no response. I'm like, uh-oh, wrong group. <laughs> Happened in St. Charles, Missouri. I couldn't get out of there quick enough. <laughs> That's myrrh. And one time I'm speaking in Claremont, Florida, and I made that little, that little notation, and some guy got up and walked out. I'm from St. Charles. And he walked out. He was all upset. Next one coming around is cinnamon, which is cinnamon from the leaf, as opposed to the cassia. That's the second form of cinnamon, followed by shibolet nerd. Shibolet nerd is spikenard. You have a verse, they washed his feet in spikenard. This is spikenard. That's followed by tsiporin, which in Israel is clove. That's followed by klufa. Klufa is aromatic bark, which is cinnamon from the bark, as opposed to cinnamon from the leaf and as opposed to the cassia. This is the third and final form of cinnamon. And that's followed by karkum. Karkum is saffron. Who's the, who's the end of the line? Back there? There you go. You can put it back together again for me. Thank you. All right, so that's followed by karkum. Karkum is saffron, which is very popular as a spice on chicken in Israel. Now, for those of you who have never attended my lecture before, which is all of you except for two, right, this next smell is a new smell you've never smelled in your life. In Hebrew, it's called kosht. In English, it's called kostus, C-O-S-T-U-S, and it cost us a fortune to find it. <laughs> One of those onomatopoeia things, right? <laughs> Now, this last one is called chelbena, in English, galbenum. This one doesn't smell good. This one comes to teach us that amongst every 11 of us, there's one who stinks, but you have to include him. <laughs> really? <laughs> ah, okay. I can continue while they're coming around, right? All right, so the reason why we provide these as an essential oil, as a liquid, is because there's a very strict biblical prohibition against preparing the incense in powder form according to specification for any use outside of the temple. And it's one of these lightning strike you dead out of the sky prohibitions. You're absolutely not allowed to do it. The reason we provide these as an essential oil is because we're taught not to be a stumbling block before the blind. Are you guys all familiar with the Jerusalem Syndrome? Nope. It's a bona fide psychological disorder that affects one out of every thousands of people that comes to Israel. They get to Jerusalem and they go God crazy. The Arabs call it majnuni, a majnun. I get that a lot. People see me, they don't know me, they go majnuni, right? You have no idea how, <laughs> really, you have no idea how many times I've outfitted John the Baptist. I kid you not. If you wake up in the morning in Jerusalem and you're now King David, you end up at my door to get outfitted because I'm the only guy making biblical garments in Jerusalem. So I didn't want to provide the ingredients of the incense in any form that could be brought down to powder. So if you wake up in the morning, you're now like the high priest, you know? <laughs> right? No, seriously, we get a lot. You, 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 you have no idea the kind of characters that show up in the streets of Jerusalem. 
In powder form. They took 35 parts of this, 65 parts of this. We read it out every day in the, in the morning prayers. And what you're not allowed to do is make the incense in powder form according to the specification for any use outside of the temple. As an essential oil, there is no way to bring it back down to powder. And I do that purposely because we're taught not to be a stumbling block before the blind. When you come to visit me in Jerusalem, I have on display behind glass the, the pods, pieces, leaves, barks, powders, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't make that available to the public because, you know, <laughs> you can't imagine some of the folks walking around in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, do, you, do you guys all know who Vendel Jones was? No. Do you all know who Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark is? Yes. All right. So there's a problem with the educational system in this country, right? Indiana Jones' character was based on a real-life dude, actually a real dead dude, he just died two years ago, named Vendel Jones from Arlington, Texas, who spent the last 30 years of his life searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant. You remember that amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was one scroll written in copper, because it was meant to survive, the copper scroll. Vendel translated the copper scroll and used it as an instruction manual to try to locate the hidden vessels from the time of the temple. Most of the major biblical discoveries of the last two and a half decades were made by this man, Vendel Jones. 1992, he was working a cave in the vicinity of Qumran, down by the Dead Sea where the scrolls were found, that they refer to today as the Blue Cave. They got to the cave, they cleared it out, they removed the floor stone, and they found underneath 600 kilos of prepared powdered incense mix. 600 kilos a year's supply of prepared powdered incense mix. Do you have any idea of the significance of this find? There were 243 species of myrrh. We now know which one was used in the incense. It was a mega discovery. He calls Rabbi Gorin, who was the chief rabbi of the state of Israel in 1992, who came down from Jerusalem with an entourage of rabbis, and Vendel asked for permission to burn a minute amount of this incense powder to see if it was still viable. Now, if you've ever been down to the Dead Sea, you know that the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it is dead as a doornail, right? The soil content of the water, the salinity is so thick that nothing could live in the water. In fact, it's so thick that nothing could live around the water. The area is blighted. The only thing that live down there are flies, like millions of them. You ever try to camp out in the Dead Sea, you've got to bring netting. So Rabbi Gorin and the rabbis came to Vendel's campsite and they burnt a fingernail's worth of this incense powder and for the next 60 days there was not a bug or a fly in their campsite. Turns out, besides being God's desired smell, it was a fumigation system. Don't tell Orkin, <laughs> right? But we're taught that one of the miracles of the temple was with all of the animal sacrifice, all the slaughtering going on, there were no flies. It created the world's first no-fly zone. <laughs> <By the boom. laughs> any, <laughs> any questions about anything I've covered so far? Cool. Well, you didn't mention about the, uh, in, in every 11, one. I did. No, you must have been yapping at the time. <laughs> I did, no. I even, got, I even got chuckles out of it. <laughs> Our next restoration takes us to the book of Exodus, chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, which is coming up shortly in our weekly Torah readings, where God commands each of us to give us an atonement for our soul back to God, half a shekel of the holy shekel, which weighed 20 gera. Now, before I continue, I do things differently than a lot of communities in America. I, I pass around a plate of money for you guys. 
That goes over better in some groups than others. All right. Um, on this tray, you have five items. You have a small stone weight, which is a four. Oh, let me just let me just backtrack. If you take one piece of information away from my talk tonight, let it be this. Anywhere where the Torah, anywhere where the Bible speaks about shekels, it is never, ever referring to money. The shekel was not a currency, it was a weight. In the same way that an ounce is broken down into grams, G-R, the shekel was broken down into gera, G-R. There were 20 gera to the shekel. The weight on this tray is a genuine four gera weight from the 7th to 8th century B.C., from the first temple period, from a period in the world before there was the concept of money. The concept of money was introduced to the world only in the 6th century BC in Persia, today's Iran. The concept of money did not make its way to the Holy Land until the 4th century BC, introduced by the Greeks. So this is a 4 gera weight, there were 20 gera to the shekel, so this is one-fifth of a shekel weight from the 7th to 8th century BC, 2700 to 2800 years ago, Right? from the first temple period, from a period in the world before there was the concept of money. You have two silver coins on the tray. The smaller silver coin is a genuine half shekel minted in Jerusalem in the year 45, 0045. We're in the year 2014. In the year 45, this coin was minted in Jerusalem and it passed through the treasury of the second temple up to 25 times. The temple was destroyed in the year 70. This coin was minted in the year 45. It existed for 25 years prior to the destruction and was reused year after year to fulfill the commandment. If somebody held it in their pouch for two or three years and it only went 22 times through the treasury of the second temple, this coin itself went up to 25 times through the treasury of the second temple. The larger silver coin is a genuine shekel minted in Jerusalem in the year 18, 0018. This coin passed the treasury of the second temple up to 52 times. When those money changers tables were thrown over, this coin could have been on them. It existed. Now here's the rule. The holiday of Purim. You all familiar with Purim? Yes. I got to tell you a funny Purim story, right? I, my parents live in Miami. I grew up in Miami, Miami Beach. So I begin my tour in Miami Beach and I end my tour in Miami Beach. You know, I get to Miami, I spend 10, 12 days in Miami, then I do my road tour, and then at the end of the trip, I spend another you know, 10, 12 days in Miami, and I go home. So at the end of the winter tour, I'm going home right before Purim, right? So I get to Miami at the end of my, my winter tour a couple of years ago, and I need a bottle of kosher wine to make Kiddush for Shabbat, for Friday night, right? So I go to the Big Daddy's Liquors on, on 94th and Harding. No, they got a whole wall of kosher wines, right? I walk in the door, the guy takes one look at me, goes, you Jewish? I don't know how he figured it out, right? <laughs> he goes, can I ask you a question? And I always brace myself, because you never know what's coming, you know? The guy goes to me, he goes, what's the name of that holiday that's coming up where all the Jews drink? I said, you mean Purim? He goes, Purim? <laughs> like, <laughs> he got it right away. Purim another one, right? Purim, right? <laughs> so the holiday, it really happens, right? So... The holiday of Purim is the holiday we begin to give the half shekel. What happens on Purim if you don't have half a shekel, all you have is a whole shekel, and you need change of half a shekel, then you had to pay the money changer, the money changer's fee, which consists of the two little bronze coins on this tray. In Hebrew, they're known as prutot. You might know them as the widow's mites. You paid one mite for the half shekel you were giving, and one mite for the half shekel you were getting back in change. 
<laughs> Just like today in Israel, the banks charge you to deposit money, they charge you to withdraw money. There's nothing new under the sun, right? So anywhere where the Torah, where the Bible speaks about shekels, they're never referring to money, they're referring to weights. And Israelite weights were always made out of stone, never out of metal, because stone cannot contract or impart ritual impurity. And since what you're giving over to the temple had to be given over in a state of ritual purity, the weights themselves that you weighed your nugget against had to be ritually pure. They had to be made out of stone. You'll notice that they were flat on the bottom so they won't roll off of the scales. They were dome-shaped, very often engraved with their weight value. Like before there were digital scales, you went to the jeweler to buy a bracelet, to sell your gold bracelet, he'd put it on one side of a scale, and then he'd put a 10-gram weight and a 5-gram weight. This was the way that we fulfilled the commandment of giving the half shekel during the entire period of the tabernacle, the entire period of the first temple, and 100 years into the second temple era was by weighing silver nugget against stone weights. Not only this commandment, but any commandment they required payments of shekels of silver, like the five shekels of the redemption of the firstborn, or the 50 shekels of the bride price, or even the 400 shekels that Abraham paid for the cave of Machpelah in Hebron for a burial site. He didn't whip out a wad of bills and can out 400 shekels. They weighed 400 shekels of silver bars against stone weights. This was Begit Ivri's collection of First Temple period weights as of a few years ago. I've since just about completed the, 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 the collection um, you remember we have a, uh, an injunction to have honest weights, not to have a heavy set to sell by and a light set to buy by? This is what they're referring to. And once again, this was how we fulfilled the commandment of giving the half shekel during the entire period of the tabernacle, the entire period of the first temple, and 100 years into the second temple era was by weighing silver nugget against stone weights. In the 4th century BC, the Greeks conquered our area, and the Greeks introduced the concept of currency, money, into the Middle East, into the Holy Land for the first time in our history. And for a period of 200 years, from the 4th century B.C. up until the 2nd century B.C., we began to fulfill the commandment of giving the half shekel using Greek silver shekels and half shekels known as didrachma and tetradrachma. In the 2nd century B.C., the Romans beat the Greeks, they're now the empire, and the Romans operated two mints in the Middle East. One in the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, in Lebanon. One in the city of Antioch, in Syria. The mint in Lebanon produced Tyrian shekels and Tyrian half-shekels of a 95% silver purity between the years 127 B.C. and the year 19 B.C. In the year 19 B.C., they closed the mint in Lebanon, transferred it to Jerusalem, and from 18 B.C. up until the year 65, we minted these coins ourselves under authority of the Roman government, specifically to fulfill the commandment. In the year 65, we rebelled against Rome. Our first act of rebellion was to make our own independent coinage. No more face of a foreign god on the front, no more eagle on the back. We made our first revolt shekels and half shekels. And how did we date these coins? We didn't date them from creation. We didn't date them from a Gentile calendar. We dated the first year's coin, Shin Aleph, Shana Aleph, the year one of the liberation land of Israel. Shin Bet, Shin Gimel, Shin Dalit, Shin Hey, the years one, two, three, four, and five of the liberation land of Israel. Of course, we lost that war. The temple was destroyed. That was the end of that. 
briefly under Bar Kokhba in the second revolt, we once again minted coins for three years, in the years 132, 133, 134, dating those coins, Shin Aleph, Shin Bet, Shin the years 1, 2, and 3 of the liberation land of Israel. We lost that war as well, and that was the end of the history of the half shekel for the next close to 2,000 years. We're going to jump ahead to Purim of 1996. What happened on Purim of 1996? Hamas, our peace partners, blew up a bomb in Dizengoff Center on Purim morning, killing 13 people, most of them children in their Purim costumes. On Purim. You all know what Purim is, right? Most joyous day of the Jewish year. What was their goal? Their goal was to steal our joy on that Purim, and they succeeded. They blew up that bomb early in the morning. The entire house of Israel worldwide went into mourning on our most joyous day of the year. Now, when this happened, I waited to hear from our leadership, our political leaders, our spiritual leaders. We're told that we have to continue with the peace process, but nobody dealt with the spiritual attack perpetrated against the house of Israel that day on Purim. Now, when you're facing a situation like that, we're given the Bible to look into for answers. We find in the book of 2 Chronicles that during the days of King Yoash, you might know him as Joash, you know who I'm referring to? During the days of King Yoash, the spirit of the people was particularly low. The temple had fallen into disrepair. People had stopped coming up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festivals. And King Yoash was minded to raise the spirit of the people of his day. How did he choose to do that? He turned to the Levites and he said, go out and restore the custom of giving the holy half shekel. And for the first time in my ancestors' history, we blew it. We didn't act. He calls in Yehoiada, the high priest of that year, and he tells him, I told Levi to restore the half shekel, get to it, go do it. And they did. And everybody gave in their half shekel. And what do we read in the text? And all of the government ministers and all of the people rejoiced, which comes to teach us if you want to restore rejoicing to the entire house of Israel, the way you do that is by restoring the custom of giving the holy half shekel. One year to the day of the bombing, Purim of 1997, the first pure silver holy half shekel in 1,927 years hit the streets of Jerusalem. And if it was their goal to, to, to steal our joy in that Purim, we're going to restore it 10,000-fold by restoring the custom of giving the holy half shekel. That's all you got, Alvin? Come on. There you go. Nice, Alvin. I'm going to wake the kids. <laughs> now, this coin that was minted on Purim of 1997 as a response to the bombing was minted to actually be used for the very first time to fulfill the commandment the following year on Purim of 1998. Why the one-year delay? Because when you give the half shekel in fulfillment of the commandment, it goes from being a piece of silver to what we refer to in Hebrew as hektish, sanctified property. Sanctified property is some serious stuff. Who's got the coins right now? Who's got the tray with the coins? Would you take the large silver coin? You got there? Would you, would you take the large silver coin, put it in the palm of your hand, close your hand around it, please? You feel the coolness of that coin in the palm of your hand? Thank you. If that coin was in a state of hectish, if that coin was in a state of sanctification, and that young man was feeling hot, and he put that coin in his hand and felt its coolness, he would be liable for misappropriation of sanctified property because he received benefit from hectish, the coolness in the palm of his hand. That's how integral it is. The half shekel is the one commandment that teaches absolute fiscal integrity in religious money matters. There's no shenanigans with the half shekel. So to be, to res to be responsible, we couldn't just start distributing coins and tell people willy-nilly send them into Jerusalem without creating the infrastructure for a safe and secure collection process. That took a year to establish. 
So this coin that was minted on Purim of 1997 was minted to actually be used for the very first time to fulfill the commandment the following year on Purim of 1998. How did we date this coin? We didn't date it from creation. We didn't date it from a Gentile calendar. We dated this coin Shin Nun, Shana Nun, the year 50, because 1998 was the 50th year of Jewish sovereignty over the Holy Land, the 50th year of the State of Israel. And that's how Israelites date our coins. Featured on the obverse on the front of the year 50 coin is a prophetic 10-string Davidic lyre, L-Y-R-E. You remember that throughout the, throughout the Torah, throughout the Bible, there are two types of harps mentioned, the harp and the lyre. The harp was a 22-stringed instrument, and the lyre in the first and second temple period was either a 7- or an 8-stringed instrument. The prophet said in the third temple era it would become a 10-stringed instrument. They would no longer refer to it as the kinor. They would refer to it as the asur, from the word eser, the word 10 in Hebrew. The House of Harari biblical harp makers who've restored harp making to Jerusalem, when they learned that, they immediately left off producing the eight-string lyre and went right into production of the prophetic 10-string Davidic lyre, restored by the House of Harari biblical harp makers in 1983. The year 51 coin for 1999 features the Apirion, the royal wedding litter that we just learned about, that we carry our brides to their wedding on their wedding day. That was restored by Begit Ivri in 1992. The year 52 coin features the Bezich, the two-handled golden incense vessel, restored by the Temple Institute in Jerusalem in 1992. That's the vessel that they carried the powdered incense mix into the temple. The year 53 coin features the Neville, the 22-string Davidic harp, restored by the House of Harari Biblical Harp Makers in 1984. Now, if you know how to play your harp, the 22 strings of the harp correspond to the 22 letters of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. So you can literally play your prayers. Like, can you imagine what Shema Yisrael sounds like on a harp? You could play it, right? The year 54 coin features the Jerusalem of Gold bridal crown that we crown our brides with on the day of their weddings. That was restored by Begit Ivri in 1991. The year 55 coin for 2003 was the 20th anniversary of the restoration of the biblical Talit, and we honored that by placing that on the year 55 coin. The year 56 coin features the chupat chatanim, the canopy of bridegrooms, that dome-shaped crimson silk and gold wedding canopy, also restored by Begit Ivri in 1992. And what we're doing is every year we're issuing a half shekel that features on the obverse, on the front of the coin, a vessel that's already been restored to physical reality for the Third Temple era. Not a wannabe or a wish list, but something we can photograph and point to. So these coins could be used not only to fulfill the commandment, but also to re-familiarize re 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 the public with all these vessels being restored for the Third Temple era. The year 57 coin features the two silver trumpets restored by Gershon Solomon in the Temple Mount Faithful. Those are the two trumpets that were used to announce Rosh Chodesh, the new moon. The year 58 coin uh, features a vessel we haven't spoken about. It's called the Hatavat Menorah. You remember in the temple there was a great big menorah, big seven-branched golden candelabra? So this was the vessel itself made out of solid gold that was used to clean out the cups and replace the wicks on the seven branches of the menorah. That was also restored by the Temple Institute. The year 59 coin features the chest for new shekels. The chest for new shekels. And I'll explain in a moment what that's all about. 
The year 60 coin features the breastplate of the high priest's outfit. In the year 2004, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem completed a first draft of the high priest's outfit. And because it's made up of eight different components, we're going to spread that out over eight different coins, starting with the breastplate of the high priest's outfit. That was restored by Temple Institute in 2004. The year 61 coin features the silver fire pan, the silver shovel that was used to bring the, uh, the burning coals from the outer sacrificial altar into the temple for the burning of the incense. The year 62 coin features a new version of the prophetic ten-string Davidic lyre based on a Bar Kokhba quarter shekel from the second revolt from the year 132. So this coin features a second temple and third temple lyre on the same coin. The year 63 coin features the silver wine decanter that was used to pour out the wine libations at the base of the altar, also restored by the Temple Institute in the early 1990s. The year 64 coin features the golden pitcher that was used to replace the olive oil in the seven branches of the menorah. Remember the year 58 coin was the vessel that cleaned out the, the cups and replaced the wick? That's the vessel that replaced the olive oil. The year 65 coin features the chest for old shekels. Remember the year 59 was the chest for new shekels? This is the chest for old shekels. And I'll explain what that is in just a moment. Last year's coin, the year 66, features the tzitz, the frontlet that the high priest wore across his forehead, made out of solid gold, and it said, Kodesh Hashem, holy to God. And that's the second part of the, of the high priest's outfit to appear on the coin. This year's coin, drumroll, blah, 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 features the flag of the tribe of Levi, which I'm going to share with you in just a moment. This is the flag, my, my, my tribe's flag, the flag of Levi. That's this year's coin. Now, this is a year 50 coin, but it has a different reverse. Anybody recognize this logo on the back of the coin? It's also a star, David. It's the, it's the logo of the Israel Defense Forces. Why are we making a parallel series of coins with the reverse of the Israel Defense Forces? Because the half shekel was and is primarily a soldier's commandment. Every other commandment in the Bible we begin to fulfill as responsible adults. The boys bar mitzvah age 13, girls bat mitzvah age 12. Very good. What age do we begin giving the half shekel? Only at the age of 20. Why the age of 20? Because the age of 20 was the age of induction into the army in the time of the Bible. Right? What was the half shekel? It was the world's first insurance policy. It was an insurance policy for your soul that you gave on the day of induction into the army that if during the course of your service you caused harm, that harm did not tarnish your soul because of the half shekel you gave as an atonement for your soul on the day you were inducted into the army. We set up a program eight years ago called Machatzit Shekel Echayal, half a shekel for a soldier. You guys can now sponsor soldiers in the Israel Defense Forces. You know, we, we, we're here in Alvin, Texas, and we, we hear about the young men and women that serve in the Israel Defense Forces. You know, we just lost two boys like two days ago, right? Um, your heart goes out to these young people, right? And you want to do something for them. What could you practically do from Alvin, Texas to help a soldier in the Israel Defense Forces? One thing you can do is you can go to www.pizza, like a pizza pie, pizzaidf.org, 
pizza, Israel Defense Forces, IDF.org, and a piping hot large pizza and ice cold two liter cola will be delivered to a group of soldiers at a roadside checkpoint somewhere in Israel. And they actually deliver. The guy who runs it, his name is Menachem Kucher. He's a longtime immigrant from Australia. He's actually my webmaster, which is why I haven't been able to get my website updated for the last 10 years, because he's now the biggest purveyor of pizza in Israel. You remember in 2006, the Second Lebanese War, they forgot to bring food for the soldiers? PizzaIDF.org delivered over 6,000 pizzas into Lebanon to feed these kids, right? So you can, you can provide for their bellies, make them big and fat like me, or now you can provide for their souls. You buy a coin, we hand it to a soldier for free. And you get a confirmation email on the day that your coin or coins are delivered into the hands of the soldiers. You can sponsor one soldier, two soldiers, five soldiers. As a community, you can sponsor an entire army base. You buy the coins, we hand them to the soldiers for free, and you get your confirmation emails on the day that the coins are delivered. Now, uh, current year coins are $23, and it goes up and down depending on the... The, the price of silver. It had been up as high as 26, now it's back down to 23 because silver's sliding. It, it, you know, but right now, currently, the, the cost of a current year coin is $23, and we always give out the current year coins. Like, um, well, I, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get to a bit more on pricing in, in a moment. Um, three years ago, I came to America on my trip, and I came here to recruit FBI agents. What is an FBI agent? Friends of Beggy Free. In case they come to tackle you, just turn around. <laughs> I've made a lot of cool things in the last 32 years. This is the coolest thing I've ever made. Right? My folks, they have a travel agency in Miami, right? So one time I was back, and they're getting old, right? So they asked me, please go over to the t-shirt shop, pick up, you know, they, they, they do cruises, so they made a cruise t-shirt. Would you please go there and, and you know, pick up our t-shirts? So I'm there, and I'm like, wow, a t-shirt company, you know? So I emailed her from Jerusalem. I said, can you make me FBI yellow against FBI blue, right? <laughs> right? And in little parentheses underneath it, it says, friends of Begadie Vree, right? What is an FBI agent? An FBI agent is somebody who undertakes to take a booklet of 10 receipts and goes out and gets 10 friends, family, whoever, to sponsor one or more soldiers. Anybody who completes a booklet of 10, sends it into Jerusalem, gets a free postage paid, FBI t-shirt. How's that for cool? <laughs> now, thus far I've spoken about the restoration of the ability to fulfill the commandment. Buying the coin is not fulfilling the commandment. Giving the coin is fulfilling the commandment. How do you give the half shekel? In the time of the temple, there were 13 chests for the collection of funds. Two of those chests were specifically for shekels. One chest was called new shekels, and one chest was called old shekels. This is the chest for new shekels. This is the chest that you deposit this year's coin into. If you merit to be in Jerusalem on Purim and you've acquired one of these coins, you come up to this chest, make the blessing, drop the coin into the chest. As soon as the coin enters the airspace of the chest, it becomes hectish, it becomes sanctified property. You've now fulfilled the commandment of giving the half shekel for this year. There's a second chest called old shekels. What is old shekels all about? Old shekels are for makeup years, for years in the past that you did not fulfill the commandment. For instance, 1998, when I gave the first half shekel in my life, I was 39 years old, which means from the age of 20 to 38, I hadn't fulfilled the commandment. When we dedicated and gave over the chest for old shekels, I deposited 19 coins into that chest, counting out my ages, 20, 21, 22, all the way up to 38, bought back all of the coins that I had missed in the past, 
and every year hereafter, one coin goes into the chest for new shekels. Now, what is the spiritual message of the holy half shekel? What is the holy half shekel really all about? We're taught concerning this commandment that the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. Right? Now, the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that is rich and poor in pocket. The person who gives the most money to the church or the synagogue gets the pews up front with the little name-taggy things, right? And the poor people are left standing in the back, right? And very often in Jerusalem, us religious characters, we have a tendency to consider ourselves spiritually wealthy, and we look upon secular or non-observant people as being spiritually poor. The half-shekel comes to teach us that that person who is so far from God in his own eyes, and I say in his own eyes because none of us are far from God, we're a breath away, but that person who is so far from God in his own eyes that he'll only check in for like a nanosecond between bites of a bacon cheeseburger on Yom Kippur kind of guy. <laughs> for those of you not laughing, we're not allowed to eat bacon cheeseburgers, and for sure not on Yom Kippur. It's a fast day. But that person is at least half a shekel. And the biggest rabbi in the biggest rebbe's chair is only half a shekel. You know, in Israel, they try to get the Reformed Orthodox together. These guys won't even sit in the same room together, right? You get all these guys together, hand everybody a half shekel, and have the person up front open by acknowledging that in my eyes, each and every one of you are at least a half a shekel, and I am only half a shekel. And on the other hand, I'm at least a half a shekel. Each one of you are only half a shekel. Can we agree on that? Yeah. Can we agree on that? We've now created the plane of equality upon which dialogue can take place. Equals cannot hate equals. You can only hate somebody you think is worth less than you. If you acknowledge that the person opposite you is at least a half a shekel, you only have a shekel, you can't hate each other. We're taught that the second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. What is baseless hatred? It's when I consider myself a whole shekel, you're not where the widows might. Right? The half shekel is the ultimate manifestation of the equality of each and every one of us before God and before man. And that is the spiritual message of the holy half shekel. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. Now, normally I, I would conclude with this next teaching, but I have something that's so new that I don't even know how to work it into my lecture yet. So let me just finish with this, and then I'll go on to something new for just a moment. In the second year of the restoration of the holy half shekel, five minutes after Rosh Hashanah is out, New Year's is out, I get a phone call from a young rabbi. His name is Yachad Witt. He calls me on the phone. He's all out of breath. He's like, Reuben, Reuben. He goes, you're not going to believe this. And he was right. I didn't believe him. He comes to me the next day. He brings the book he'd been studying over the holiday. It's called Orchot Chaim, The Ways of Life. It's a compendium of teachings of a 10th century commentator that we refer to as the Rosh. <coughs> Excuse me. And he writes, this is a thousand years ago. You shall not diminish from giving less than half a shekel every year at one time. In other words, you cannot fulfill this commandment by giving a quarter shekel now and a quarter shekel next month. You have to give in one clip once a year, right? So you know how a Jewish text works. You have the text, then you have the commentary on the text, then you have the commentary on the commentary of the text, and the commentary on the commentary on the commentary of the text. Jewish stuff, right? You've got to give me your wife to do the whole trip with me because she laughs a lot. I like that. <laughs> right? This first commentator who we refer to as the Tosus Yom Tov, he wrote this some 367 years ago. He writes, referring up to the text, Machatzi Shekel B'Koshana, I have a shekel every year. What's he referring to? And he answers it, it's what I have highlighted here in orange, and in the text itself it's in parentheses, which is weird enough. He answers, Shehu B'Shavi Chetzi Prager Kesef. It's the equivalent of Prager Silver Half Shekel. 
Now that means nothing in Hebrew, but my name is Reuben Prager, and I just restored the half shekel the year before, right? So this young rabbi goes, what do you think this means? Right? And I'm looking at it, I'm like, well, obviously, right? So he gives this nervous chuckle, he goes, hey, hey, hey. he goes, what do you think it really means? Right? So I wrote to my mom, I said, mom, we found a rabbi who defines the half shekel as being the equivalent of Prager silver half shekel. She goes, great, get his mailing list. <laughs> From 367 years ago. All right. Now, this last thing I'm going to share with you is um, three years ago, I finished my first learning of the Babylonian Talmud, which I began in 1985. That's how long it took me to get through it. It's like <laughs> 25 years of like non-ending legalistic, it's real, you know. So during that whole time, I was wondering, well, what's the next thing I want to study? So the next thing I wanted to study is a work that we call in Hebrew Midrash Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah is, a collect, is, is 10 volumes of all the legends of the Jews. No legalistic stuff in it at all. All the, all the, the, the what we call Baba Mises, all the grandma's tales and all the legends of the Jews, right? That go all the way back, right? So studying Midrash Rabbah, and I'm always looking for things that used to exist that don't long, no longer exist so that I can restore them, right? So it teaches that when we came out of Egypt, which is like the, the Torah portions of, of the last week, this week, next week, we're coming out of Egypt, right? And we go to Sinai, we're given the Torah, and we build a tabernacle, and all of the tribes encamp themselves around the tabernacle, each tribe under its tribal flag. And there's an exact description of each of the 12 tribes' flags, actually 14, right? The 12 major tribes. I'm going to share with you now the tribe of my the flag of my tribe, this is the flag of the tribe of Levi. And it's weird because it's like, you think of Jewish flags, you think of blue and white. It's like such un-Jewish colors, right? right? So it describes our flag as being one-third white, one-third black, and one-third red. And, and embroidered in the center is the Orium and Tumim. Now, we don't know what the Orium and Tumim were, but we know that the Orium and Tumim were deposited into the breastplate. So whenever the Orim and Tumim are depicted, they're depicted as the breastplate of the high priest. So I made a full-size flag. I made a desktop size. And for Levites only, the lapel pin. <laughs> How's that for cool? So th and this is also, this is what's depicted on this year's half shekel. It's the flag of the tribe of Levi.